0: We're in the book of Luke in the uh, second chapter, all the way in the second chapter. (laughs) We're studying, if you will, Christology, who Christ is and what he does because that's the foundation of our soteriology, how his work is savingly applied to our lives. We're looking at the background of this Jesus In depth, that Luke gives that some of the other gospels don't. And where we left off last time was looking at the fact that after the temple experience, uh, mom and dad are headed back to their hometown of Nazareth. And they get to a stopping place uh, in our study about this amazing child. And when they look around and gather themselves, behold, Jesus isn't there. I asked the question, it was rhetorical, but if you have an answer, was this bad parenting when Mary lost Jesus, as it were? Was it? No, ma'am. Why is that? Well, she figured he was with his father or the family or the relatives. She had every reasonable expectation that he was going to be there when they stopped. Uh, this is a classic case of uh, her turning to Joseph. This is sanctified imagination here. Her turning to Joseph. I thought he was with you. And he turning. Well, I thought he was with you up front, but he was. <laughs> but he wasn't. <laughs> well, let's begin by looking at verse. 43 in chapter 2. Let me just read that and we're going to try to finish up through 52. In verse 43, when the feast was ended as they were returning, here is, here, listen, this is the main point of this passage. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. He stayed behind in Jerusalem. It is a divine appointment, if you will, that was taking place here. He is spending this time in the temple. One of the things that crossed my mind when I was thinking about this, (coughs) this was a three-day interval between the parents losing him and them finding him again. (coughs) One day's journey to where they stopped overnight. (coughs) Another day's journey back, and it took them a day to find him. (coughs) It seems, in studying this, that the last place they looked for him was the temple. Because it says it took three days. Why was that, if they did? Just imagining and asking. He stayed behind. What's at work here? He is in the temple. Verses 46 and 47 give us an idea of what's going on here. And we read, After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Perhaps in growing up, you've seen a Sunday school lesson about this, and they picture Jesus standing there teaching them. That is not exactly what's taking place here. I'm sure he might have been instructing them with some of his answers, but he was there listening. And it was a give-and-take teaching situation. I suppose this is uh, in uh, an old movie I saw about lawyers being trained, the Socratic method, asking question and you answer. There was give-and-take here, questions being asked and being answered. And he is precocious here, answering them and in some ways making them scratch their head. Where is this coming from? This chap is only 12 years old. He's precocious, he's passionate about what's going on, and they're amazed at this. They were amazed at his understanding. How much of this is his uh, physical side where he's developing and learning things and grasping things? How much perhaps the spiritual side, I'm not sure. One thing I'm certain of, he is not disobedient in staying here. There might have been a breakdown in communication. Don't know all of that that's involved. But he is here at an appointed time. He is here to learn <coughs> and perhaps unknowingly cause distress in the lives of Mary and Joseph. The teaching here around the temple often took place in groups out in what they call the porches, the surrounding outlying area of the temple, they would gather in groups, uh, perhaps on um, un, an uh, unscheduled meeting, we're going to meet here, we're going to discuss these matters, you're welcome to join in. Whatever the situation, but he was there learning. He's, the kind of questions perhaps were a little unusual. They were amazed at his understanding about these things. The idea is here, this isn't a crowd of 12-year-old youngsters, young men. He is among the religious leaders of Israel here at the temple. He is giving and taking on on an equal footing, if you will. Part of the mystery of the incarnation is seen in this. He amazes them, even as a little child. It's It's a delightful thing and almost a scary thing to think of the power of our Savior. Well, look at verses 48 to 50. When his parents saw him, they were, what? (laughs) Astonished. They were astonished. And his mother said to him, this seems to be a change of tone from the astonishment, (laughs) she says, son, why have you treated us so? It's almost as if she's berating him here. What were you thinking? We took off, went down the road on on the beginning of our 80-mile trek home, we lose you. We can't find you. Behold your father. Now this is interesting. Think of the the play here between the two. Well, let me read it all the way through. She says, Mary says to Jesus, Behold your father, and I have been searching for you in great distress. What does he say to them? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my where father's Father's house we have mary's picture of joseph as the father jesus in his answer says god is my father this is the mystery again of the incarnation true joseph walked with mary raising jesus rearing him as his earthly father but really Christ is pointing the, pick, the finger at who the true father is that he's doing work for here in the temple, as it were. Didn't you know You must be I was, must be at my father's place? I must be doing the work of my father? Very interesting picture here. Another interesting thing about this is after this uh, story here, I don't think we hear of Joseph again in the gospels. I believe physically, After this, sometime, he died. He is not around when Christ begins his earthly ministry about 18 years after this incident here. No mention of him. And of course, certainly nothing of him at the time of Christ's uh, humiliation. The, The conversation, Mary seems to chide him. She does have a great concern, but she's still what? did not fully understand her son. The light hadn't come on yet, and we would be the same way. This so often happened. There were 12 uh, pretty godly men, Judas perhaps excluded, that walked walked with Christ for three years on this earth, and they get to the crucifixion, and they still don't understand what's going on completely. Mary doesn't quite understand the mystery that's involved here. And she seems to chide him. First, they were astonished. The Greek word there means knocked out or (laughs) shocked. Their minds were blown. Where is he? What's going on here? (laughs) And what's he doing here in this temple? And Jesus gives an equally astonishing answer. I'm in my father's house. He might have said, you just don't understand. Perhaps someday you will. Did you not know I am in my father's house? That is not Joseph. (laughs) You see his mission here. He was, I believe, aware of his true identity as the incarnate son of God, even at the age of 12. He said, I am here doing my father's business, the heavenly father. He doesn't say our Father. He doesn't point to Joseph by his language or his gestures. We have here a glimpse of the Trinity, if you will. The Father and the Son, one God, one God. And of course, the Holy Spirit makes up the Trinity. You see, Jesus is under God's authority. Ultimately, he is not under Mary and Joseph's. That we ought not to lose that when we begin training our children, you know, don't use this as an instant to punish your child necessarily based on what happens here. Ultimately, Jesus is under the direction of the heavenly father. He is under his authority, ultimately, and not that of Joseph and Mary. You say, what? Yeah, he's here under God's authority. Let me hearken back to the first chapter of the book of Luke and we read this in verse 35. The angel answered her, talking about Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I don't know if the light came on then but this was an indication of what was written back in chapter 1, verse 35. Mary, <clears throat> this isn't just yours and Joseph's son. This is the son of God that we told you about. Wow, what, a, what an instance this is. Maybe that's what he was saying. Um, you know, in light of everything you've been told, why didn't you look here first? Yes. Don't you remember? An angel came and spoke to you. Yeah, it's a good point. But so many times in Scripture this happens. You think of the apostles and you think, how could they be so dumb? (laughs) Well, you only have to look in the mirror sometimes. You know, sometimes how dumb are we with regard to trusting and learning about God? Well, the conclusion of the matter is in verses 50 and 51. (coughs) They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and, look at this, was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. What a blessing that is. She again is pondering here. They did not understand, but he nevertheless, finishing, I suppose, his work here in the temple for this time, returned with them to Nazareth. And the scripture says he was submissive to them. Our Jesus kept the law all the way through his life at every point. There was, seems to be a side road here because mom and dad didn't understand, but he was not disobedient. And as I said, I think this is the last time we hear about Joseph or see him. He was probably older when he married Mary. Remember, we figured she was a young girl in, in her teen years. Well, he disappears after this. Mary takes these things and ponders them. And the conclusion of the matter is things go on. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see the progression of his life in in some ways in the uh, words used to describe Jesus. For instance, in chapter two and verse 16, we read this. and they went with haste who's this the shepherds and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger you go further down in the same chapter and you come to verse 40 the return to Nazareth and the description of Jesus there is and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him We've left the baby. Verse 43, (laughs) this is where we were just talking about the trip to Jerusalem. The feast was ending, they were returning, and the boy, Jesus, we see this progression here. And then we come to verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We have a full (coughs) orb picture, if you will, of the Savior. He increased in all these things, past this time in the temple, and he did that progressively for 18 more years until he began his earthly ministry. So we leave this chapter, we go to chapter 3 in the book of Luke. Where are we going? We're leaving behind 18 years of history <laughs> to look at Jesus down the road. Let me read to you verses one through six of Luke chapter three. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Traconius and Lysantius, Tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. <coughs> and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We turn now back away from Jesus and look at John the Baptist again. And we have here (coughs) the beginning of his ministry on earth. Luke, (coughs) excuse me. Luke weaves a beautiful picture of the history of these two men together. We have the foretelling of the birth of John and then his birth. We have the same thing about Jesus and his birth. And now after the incident, if you will, at, at uh, Jerusalem in the temple at age 12, we move forward about 18 years. And we're beginning to look at the full ministry of John the Baptist. Luke is doing this. I have no idea why he jumps that many years, but it's... it's uh, divinely inspired, and it's a question I'll have to say for eternity, I suppose. What do we have here that Luke is doing once again in chapter 3, like he did earlier? What do we say about Luke and his presentation of the gospel? Goes back to the Old Testament. He does. He fills in a lot of the historical setting that the other gospels don't. And that's taking place here too. Well, how do I get that? Well, you read the first several verses. How many names are listed there? Who are they? We'll look at that. This is 18 years after the temple visit. We're going to have John front and center. And Luke doesn't leave us scratching our heads wondering here. He tells us, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Tiberius Caesar... He was emperor, (laughs) served, I believe, from about 14 to 37 AD. There's one. What kind of leader is he? I don't mean describe his character. What kind of leader is he? He is, he's not a religious leader, is he? He's a political leader. Luke wants us to see that. He wants to see what's going on here in the world. We also have Pontius Pilate, who was governor of Judea. <clears throat> Some places that's called proconsul, his title. Again, a secular position, if you will, in politics. He reigned from about 14 to 37 AD. These correspond, of course, you've figured this out already, with the life of Jesus Christ and his ministry. Well, we go beyond that. We go to Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philippa tetrarch. This Herod is not Herod the Great that we saw in the beginning of Matthew who sends people chasing after Jesus and slewing babies to try to find him. That's Herod the Great. Put that in in, uh, quotation marks, if you will. This is his son. Nevertheless, one who's going to be important throughout the history of Christ's life and his ministry on earth. He's called a tetrarch because the the kingdom was divided when Herod the Great died into four sections, supposedly. We have three of those sections' leaders identified here, and this Herod, this Herod, uh, the Tetrarch here, is one of those. He rules approximately a fourth of the land, and he's in power from about 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. We're going to see him. He has a brother, Philip, who's given a portion of the land. He is tetrarch of two particular sections that are mentioned there, Ituria and Traconitus. And then we have another, a third that's listed, Lysanias. He is tetrarch of Abilene, not to be confused with Texas. Okay. (laughs) A town, a region called Abilene. You say, well, there's only three there. Well, that's right. (laughs) Somewhere in the history, there's not a fourth mentioned here, but there that's where the word tetrarch comes from. Nevertheless, they had that sort of office, if you will. They held a certain portion, and it got to be tetrarch because it was supposedly divided four ways. I don't know where the fourth one would be unless the two <coughs> regions that are assigned to Philip take care of that fourth region. It doesn't really matter What Luke wants us to see is these people are in control. You see the areas where they are in control, the regions. That's important for our future history here. Augustus was a co-regent with Tiberius, and he died in about 14 A.D., and he left Tiberius Caesar here to rule in his place when he died. Well, he is Herod the Great. He was father of these Tetrarchs. He's mentioned in Matthew 2. And here we have a different Herod. He's one of Herod the Great's sons. In other places, he's referred to as Herod Antipas, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. And he was Tetrarch of a certain region, and he had two brothers as well. And they had another one who was over this place called Abilene. Well, Luke draws the picture out more for us. He said, during the high priesthood, now we have a picture on the religious side of Annas and Caiaphas. Who do those remind you of or make you think of? Now we have a picture here of two high priests. Why two? What's going on here? thought only one high priest ruled. That is true. There are two here because once again, Luke gives us a picture of the turmoil that's going on here. We have two listed here, excuse me, using my young voice there. <laughs> we have Annas and we have Caiaphas. Well, again, we have political intrigue taking place. Annas was booted, removed from office by the Romans and they had Caiaphas replaced him. This really didn't set well well with the Jews and was not their particular decision. They often deferred to Annas as the high priest. And I believe that would be easy to do because Caiaphas was his son-in-law. So they probably worked together a little bit, but they have two of them here. So we have all kinds of uh, political intrigue taking place here at this time. They're wicked times. You cannot find anything in scripture about good and godly things these rulers did. There are times of political intrigue. There are times like Job described in chapter nine. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. Those who are indifferent to what's going on. Wow, you could paint that on a postcard and... Washington, D.C., couldn't you? It's the time of these, 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 and these, the ruling of the wicked, and they cover their faces. That's what's taking place here. On the surface, what do you think the reaction of the people would be in a time like this? Well, what's your reaction to 2022 America? What are we going to (laughs) do? Right. Where do we turn? Where do we go? On the surface, it's a time of despair. We have corrupt political, we have corrupt religious leaders, and to put it bluntly, they rule in rebellion against God. And my friends, it doesn't take me or any greater genius than I am to tell you that's what's happening in our time. Our rulers are ruling in rebellion against God. So you see, we have many lessons we can learn here from this particular passage of scripture, this place in the life of Jesus. In our study of Jesus' life, we'll see the prominent roles that at least four of these figures play in the life of the Savior. They are Pilate, Herod, Annas, and Caiaphas. They play a role in his life, in his ministry, and of course, in his death. Think for a minute, what role do these different individuals play in the life of Jesus? I gave you Pilate. What's he do? Hands him over to the Jews. He what? Hands him over to the Romans. Goes off then and washes his hands, doesn't he? I'm, I'm done with the matter. How about Herod? Well, Herod does not give a good word to those who come to seek him, including Jesus, to rectify any situation. Herod was so vile that in order to maintain his position as this political leader, he even had members of his own family killed, lest they would be rival for his position in the government. What do you think he's going to think of Jesus? Nothing. And Annas and Caiaphas have no uh, biblical discernment to bring to the situations that arise in Jesus' life, even when they're directly appealed to by people. They're just an awful situation. And so the hope you see that the ministries of John and Jesus are grounded in this history here, I hope you see that. This is where their ministries are taking place. You know, where you and I walk. We rub shoulders with people that have experienced similar things to what we're experiencing. Uh, Even though we don't experience the tremendous problems that others are, we're feeling the pressure of unbelief in our world. There's something to be gained from this. Luke's telling us, look, here's the background. Here's the situation. This is what's going on. This is... the people that are players in this situation. Well, secondly then, John begins to preach and we see that in verse 2b through 6 that I read to you. 2b says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. What's significant about that? Well, this wilderness, (laughs) this is a picture that you can find a number of times in Scripture. Where did Moses start? Oh, I know he was brought up in the house of Pharaoh, but after that, he took off somewhere else. He was on the backside of a mountain in the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep when the Lord sent for him. Where was David? (laughs) Out taking care of sheep. Elijah spoken to many times in the wilderness. It's a place of learning. It's a place of spiritual discipline. It's a place of meeting face to face with God, knowing him, experiencing him. And listen to what it says. <clears throat> the word of God came to John. John did not graduate from college and go hang his PhD or his uh a DVD on the wall and say, all right, I'm ready to preach. The word of God came to him. This is interesting. His call, and that's true of any real minister. We must have the word of God and be sent with that in order to serve him. How was John prepared? We don't know all the ins and outs, but he had spent some time here. His parents were relatively what when he was born? Old. They were probably gone sometime during that period of training in the wilderness. This is a very (laughs) sobering thing. What did he wear? What did he eat? You know the story. He's out there not for the comforts of the world. He's out there to be prepared for this singular and very temporary and abbreviated ministry. To hail the coming of the Messiah and it starts in the wilderness. There's a number of times that I said that that happens in scripture. This particular wilderness that's being talked about here is a barren hill country between Judea and the Red Sea. Nothing of any value grows there, some scrub branches. If you ever want a description of that, talk to uh, Malcolm Gibson. He's been in a place like that, can describe the vegetation there. About all you can do is cut it down and start a fire with it. It's not a place of lush going out and picking corn and other vegetables to eat. It's a harsh environment. He is in that barren country. It's austere. And he lived there for, I don't know, perhaps 18 years. A good little while until we get to this place. He is in training like Moses was tending his father-in-law's sheep. I think it serves as a rebuke here in this particular situation to the religious community. You know, they had to be up in arms. They had all this uh, wonderful accoutrement here around Jerusalem. We have the temple, we have this, we have that. This is a very humble place, but it's a place where God meets his servant. And we read, just as I did, the word of God came to him. Perhaps it is that that drew some of the people to John. You know, we live in difficult times. We'll go to extremes to get the word of God. It's interesting, some of the new members of our church come from great distances (laughs) to be here. I was looking someone up recently, and I don't know the connection because he's a very new member, but... His address is given as, given as Donald's, South Carolina. Donald's isn't right next door to Greer, but he's coming here. It said maybe these people are gonna be drawn to John in this place, in this manner, where the word of God came to him. This is not new. Let me give you some instances in the Old Testament. Genesis 15, guess who we're talking about? Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 1 Samuel 15. Well, you don't know that, then we need to. I'll give you a chance to get a cup of coffee and regroup. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And he said to Samuel, I, I regret that I have made Saul king. And then goes on to give him instruction. In 1 Kings 17 And the word of the Lord came to him. Elijah was being sent to the brook Cherith. And then if you remember from our pastors preaching through Jeremiah, the very first verses of Jeremiah 1, you read how the word of the Lord came. This is big. This is really big. Those words, the word of the Lord came. Now, I don't have time to fill in all the blanks of that, but you remember what we said. This man, John, is the last, if you will, Old Testament prophet. 400 years, there's been no prophecy. There's been silence. And friends, to make it more local, it's been about 30 years since his and Jesus' birth since we had these kind of words. The word of the Lord has come. There's been this gap. People must have been wondering what's going on. This is big, right here to this man, John, whom the world would probably despise and look down upon. The word of the Lord has come to him. Well, what does that word say? We'll get into that. Verse three, look at the scope and design of this. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I will stop right there with the reading of it. But really, do you know where Jesus or where John's ministry first began? Maybe I'm being a little far-fetched here. <laughs> I believe his ministry first began in the womb. What happened? when Mary and Elizabeth were pregnant with these sons of destiny, if you will, there was movement. There was a deliberate bonding, if you will, that was going on there. There was this proclamation that a Messiah is here and John reacted to that. He was, if you will, ministering the word to a degree even way back then. Let me go to, again, we're still here in Luke, and go to verses 15 and 17. We're almost to the end of our time, but let me read to you a couple more verses here. This is talking to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, about their son. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's what John was doing. That's what he was called to do. And then at the end of that same chapter 1, we read in verses 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's what's taking place now. This full-orb development of the ministry of John that was promised approximately 30 years before this. We're about to see all of this unfold. (laughs) Alone in a barren country, his prophetic personality developed, he's ready. And the word of the Lord came to him. Well, what's gonna happen? Can I tell you come back next week? <laughs> Do you have any questions or comments? We're looking at the beginning of John's ministry here. Well, back in Malachi, the very last verse, he's promised. Amen. Do you have it right there? Yeah. Uh-huh. See, I will say you, Amen, yeah. I, I will probably bring that up later in my notes. <laughs> but sorry. thank you. No, 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 don't, don't be sorry. That's good, you're thinking and looking. That's a, amen. It's great to see these things in the Old Testament fulfilled in the New. Does it not strengthen your faith? You know, how long did they wait for this, the nation of Israel? Sometimes they waited a long time for things because they were disobedient. But the 400 years of silence... And when we started, I went over some of the things that have happened in the last 400 years. A lot of things have unfolded. And this is a desperate time. Well, it may be a desperate time for us, but can we not gather hope, garner hope from these words of scripture? God has not forsaken his people. He is going to be true to his word. Just sometimes we need to sit on our hands a little bit and wait on him. I love that verse in Ruth. Where she's told uh, about seeking a husband, just to, uh, sit and see how the matter will fall. Sometimes we just need to pray and sit, see how God will work. I don't mean that we're to be indolent in our practice of our faith, <laughs> but we need to wait upon Him. God is going to do the event in all of history that matters here, and John is going to be blessed to be used by Him to proclaim that. And we'll look at that next week, Lord willing.